0: I was getting a little nervous when Pastor Reuter was referring to himself as an old man. I don't know where that leaves me. I mean, he's like my little brother. Age is irrelevant. It's uh, what's going on on the inside, I think. I know a lot of old people, thank you, who are very young. I know a lot of young people who are very old. And um, I'm one of those guys that got to about age 26 and stuck there. I just, you know, so I'm the most surprised guy in the world every morning when I look in the mirror. Ooh, who is that guy? But It's wonderful to, to know that the Lord is our strength, amen? The Lord is our strength. And as our days, so sh- shall our strength be. Scripture says. It's real, I I really mean this, a pleasure and a privilege to be here. As uh, Pastor Reuter has mentioned, we have been colleagues for over two decades, and um, he and Esther and Kathy and I have a very strong bond of friendship, as well as a very strong bond in ministry, as we come alongside and help Creso Ministries, especially in providing pharmaceuticals for Uh, the thousands of people that they are caring for with Creso Ministries who are living with HIV and AIDS. We uh, are so impressed with what Creso is doing for orphans and widows, and that is our primary focus. Pastor Reuter mentioned Jerusalem. In 1981, the Israeli government invited Kathy and I to plant a church in Jerusalem. It was a very unusual moment, first time in the history of the state that they'd ever asked a pastor to come and plant a church in Jerusalem. We had just built a brand new church in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We had about 800 people attending, the place was just so successful. We had three little children, seven, five and three years of age. Um, No reason really to want to leave Toronto. But when this invitation came our way, it was an offer we could not refuse. And so in 1981, November 1981, Kathy and I and our three children moved to Jerusalem. Planting a church in Jerusalem was quite an experience. And I have not come here today to tell you that story. But within a matter of months after we planted the church, we had people from all over the world coming through our congregation, through our services. And many of them had come to Israel to kind of uh, find confirmation for their end-time biblical interpretations. And as you might expect, there were some pretty weird end-time scenarios that came through Jerusalem. Very weird. In fact, I've often said Jerusalem attracts Flakes, like light attracts flies. Every weirdo in Christendom seemed to be coming through. And they would come to me with their end time revelation. And they wanted my um, endorsement. Because I was the pastor of the biggest church in the country. And you know, for the first few years, I was nice to these people. But then I had a a sudden revelation one day. Nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. Hallelujah. (laughs) Being nice is not necessarily being loving. And I, I began to ask some very specific questions of these people, and I got some very weird answers. I got so tired of it, that I decided that I would do a study of Old Testament prophecy. I mean, I'm living in the city, you know, of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, I have my Bible. I have a kind of a rudimentary knowledge of Hebrew. I have all kinds of friends in the city who are rabbis. I have a number of Christian friends who are there doing PhDs at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And so I had access to a lot of feedback and input with regard to Old Testament prophecy. So I did a study, and it wasn't just for a week or a month. It was for an entire year. I studied every passage in the Old Testament that is prophetic in nature. Now, you have major prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Right? but you also have 12 minor prophets. And they're called minor because they are of lesser volume than the bigger guys. But you put it all together and you have a very interesting uh, view of Israel from God's perspective. Two things the Lord insists on through the prophets. One is that you remember him, and secondly, that you thank him. Remembrance and gratitude are very, very important core values from God's perspective. And you really see that coming through when we celebrate communion. We remember him and we thank him when we have communion, right? By the way, you guys, you did a great job today. You must be very tired. If If I'd been up there dancing with you, I'd be on the ground. I just... I gave up dancing long ago because when I dance, I fall over. But as I analyzed the Old Testament prophets, I discovered something very astonishing. They all are saying pretty much the same thing. Now, there are some prophecies that relate to, you know, uh, a conflict with Moab or, you know, some issue with Egypt. But in general, when you look at the prophetic content of Old Testament prophecy, this is what you discover. And this is a very important message for young people. In fact, it is the message young people need to hear. Because if you can dig into this and plant your life on what I'm about to say, it will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life. The essential Bottom line of Old Testament prophecy is the call of God to the people of Israel to be in right relationship with Him and to be in right relationship with neighbor. And in the Hebrew language, there are two words that are used most often. And when it refers to the fulfillment of the demands of relationship with God, the Hebrew word zadka means righteousness. With neighbor, mishpat, Justice. The call of the prophets was to righteousness and justice. That's it. And, you know, there were a lot of religious practices in Israel. There's always a lot of religious practices when you get people together because we all want to think the same act, the same sound, the same, use the same language, sing the same songs, dance the same dances. We all want to be a part of the social group, right? And it's interesting how sometimes our social mores take on almost biblical values when indeed they should not. I'm a fourth generation Pentecostal preacher. My great-grandfather, back in 1913, was the first. And then his four sons three of whom are great uncles of mine, one of whom was my grandfather. And then my dad and his brothers and his sisters, all preachers of the gospel. So we've been at it now for, what, 110 years? I've heard it all. I've seen it all. And I know how much religion encroaches on our spiritual lives because we have subcultural values, subcultural core values that we credit as having biblical authority. Now, for example, I don't know if I'm going to step on toes here or not, but when I was growing up, you must not go to see a movie Because the movie house is the devil's house. Okay? And everybody knows Jesus comes back, he will not see you because he can't see into the theater. No kidding. When I was eight, nine, ten years of age, television was becoming a big deal. Black and white television. But television you must not have a television because a television is the devil's box. Now, little did they know, little did I know that a few years later, I, as a television guy, would be living in the devil's box. Now, I, I use those two examples simply to illustrate what I'm talking about here. You know that there's any number of religious practices that have taken on biblical authority for us that in fact are not biblical at all. And what happens with many of these is we become legalists. And we judge people because they're going to movies. We judge people because they're watching television. When I was a kid, we judged people if they were Baptists. Only the Pentecostals were going to heaven. I'm serious. You know this is true. What's fascinating about Old Testament prophecy, kids, is that it is not a call to religion. It is not a call to standards that will come and go. It's a call to being in right relationship with God and right relationship with neighbor, full stop. Okay? Now, we need to expand on this. Uh, pastor told me I have to preach an hour. Is that right? Yeah. You know, in Canada or the States, if you preach an hour, they all got to I remember when I first started preaching in Africa, uh, back when I used to come down from Jerusalem to do conferences, the first few times I thought, you know, I'll give them 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and So I tried that, and people got mad at me. This one lady said to me, I walked 30 kilometers to hear you preach today, Pastor, and all you gave me was half an hour? (laughs) Well, I guess if I got something to say, maybe an hour is okay. Okay. Let me give you a few scriptures, just for those of you who are taking notes. It really all started in the Bible with Genesis 18. You need to turn to Genesis 18. Uh, your Bible or your your smartphone, whatever. Here's another. Uh, religious core value of my my childhood. Pastors used to make a big deal about hearing the pages of a Bible turning in their services. You know, turn to Genesis 18, they'd listen for all the pages turning. Now you look for all all the cell phones. You know. (laughs) Whatever. In Genesis 18, you have this fascinating story of a visit that Abraham has from three mysterious individuals. He's the tent dweller. He's near Hebron. He's come all the way from Haran in the north down to Shechem and then down to Hebron. And he set up his little tent city because he was a very wealthy guy. And he had a big entourage of slaves and servants and animals. He had no children yet. Anyhow, he's the Bible says it's in the heat of the day And he's sitting in the shade of the door of his tent. And he sees three guys suddenly coming over the horizon. Now, you know, out in the wilderness, even these days, for Bedouins, for instance, who still live like Abraham lived in uh, Israel. When you see a stranger, you rush to show them hospitality. It's a part of the cultural core values of desert dwellers. So he rushes to these three guys. He invites them to come and sit in the shade. He calls on Sarah, his wife, and some of his servants to prepare a meal. And while they're preparing the meal, he sits down and has this delicious conversation with these guys. He's loving it. But what's interesting about it, and I'm not going to read all of it, but as you read through Genesis 18, you see that these three guys are sometimes referred to as the Lord. The Lord. Other times, it's I, then other times, it's he. You know, it's a kind of a strange mix. I, he, the Lord, they. There's three of them. The theologians, you know, have had a blast with this. They, they, they figure it's maybe a, an appearance of the Trinity. Some think maybe it's a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Uh, others say, well, it's just three angels. Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to speculate. All I know is is what's happening. After telling Abraham that a year from now, I will return and Sarah will have a son, Sarah, who's 90 years old, in the other tent overhears what's going on, and she laughs. Wouldn't you laugh if you were told at 90 years of age you are going to have a child? Hello? Laugh," he said. "What's this guy nuts? I'm not going to have a child at 90. Abraham's 100. Interestingly, when they did have the child, they called it Itzhak, Isaac, which means laughter. <laughs> Very appropriate. Anyhow, they get up to leave. They're on their way to Sodom, and Abraham he kind of he walks along with them, you know, for a kilometer or so because he you know he keep, wants to keep talking. He doesn't want them to go away. And as they're going, they're talking and talking. And at one point, they kind of stop. And this is what happens. Let's start with um, verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm, I'm, I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, here's the kicker. Are you ready for this 19th verse? Here it is. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. Here we go. That they keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The way of the Lord, righteousness and justice. This is coming from God himself. This isn't coming from some some preacher. It's not coming from some theological seminary. This is not coming from some religious institution. This is coming from God himself. The way of the Lord is to do righteousness and justice, full stop. It's not to be religious. It's not to make the other Christians happy because you're conforming to what they think is right. Righteousness and justice. Now, Let me just give you a few follow-up scriptures just for your own edification. In Psalm 89, verse 14, Psalm 89, verse 14, and also Psalm 97, verse 2, it says the same thing. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne, O God. Did you hear that? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne, O God. Now, how strong is that? In Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a preciousness, the plumb line. Whoa. Justice, the measuring line. Righteousness, the plumb line. Among all the other things that the Reuters do, they are terrific builders, as you know. 25 years ago, this building didn't exist. The university didn't exist. The Kressel Clinic didn't exist. 21 Mobile Clinics didn't exist. Along with everything else that they do, they're great builders. That big old tower out there that's about 100 feet tall, Pastor Reuter built himself. He amazes me. If I tried to build something, (laughs) we'd be in big trouble. But here's the point. If there's anybody who knows the truth of this scripture, it's Pastor Reuter. You have to have proper measurement, and you have to have proper plumb, right? what's, What's the adage for carpenters? Measure twice, cut once. Is that how it is? Make sure you got the measurement right. Make sure the plumb line has got you know, perfect plumb. Because if, if, if this building is not built with perfect plumb, gravity wins, and the place collapses, and we die. Okay. A story this morning on the internet about uh, residents in Istanbul, Turkey, that huge city of 15 million people. They're very nervous about the earthquakes that have hit Turkey in the last month. Why are they nervous? Because most of their houses were built before any kind of standard of building was put in place. And already there are cracks in many of the houses in Istanbul, and they're expecting the worst. When there isn't proper measurement, there isn't proper plumb. all you have to do is have a little shake of the ground, and everything comes crashing down. So. This is the same principle that applies to our lives. Justice is the measuring line. Righteousness the plumb line. So if we're going to be held accountable, as we are, before God, the question will not be, did you buy a television, the devil's box? Did you go to a movie with rapture-proof ceilings? No. Or any other legalism you want to throw in there. The question will be, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? That's the question that will be asked. Now, I'll give you one more scripture, and then I need to Move to something beyond that. The prophet Amos, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, a very interesting duo, these guys. Isaiah was a um, a well-to-do courtier. He he, you know, he he knew that he knew the king, the, king, the president. The, uh, he he was very. He drove a Porsche. You know, he was one of those guys. Uh, <laughs> did that just go over your head when I said that? He drove a Porsche, an expensive car. Okay. Amos, on the other hand, was a shepherd and a fruit picker. He had gnarly hands, dirt under his fingernails, calluses. Isaiah was. A fluent writer. Amos was not so fluent, but interestingly, he must have been educated because he writes some of the most powerful poetry in all of prophetic literature, and Amos was probably the first prophet to put his prophecies in writing. Interesting, eh? Anyhow, God called him to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel out of Judah. And this is what The Lord says through the prophet Amos to the people in the northern kingdom. Listen to this. I hate. This is Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. 5, 21 to 24. I hate. I despise your feast days. (laughs) Congregation of the righteous. The Lord hates this meeting. He hates this music. He hates this noise. He hates all of this fuss in the name of the Lord. He hates it. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Okay, What's he saying here? He's saying... Israel, and I think we can apply it to ourselves, don't kid yourselves. Don't think that by being religious and acting religious and sounding religious and singing religious and dancing religious that you're impacting heaven at all. I mean, this is easy to do. Kathy and I work in some of the most rural areas, especially of central Zambia and also Malawi and parts of South Africa. And we see the, the tribal dancing and the tribal singing, and it's amazing. It is so energetic, dancing like I've never seen. And I'll tell you, in those tribal areas, they shake everything they can shake. Okay, we're talking shake it up, baby. <laughs> okay, But interestingly, I come into the house of the Lord, and I see almost the same thing. I'm not saying they are the same thing. But the point I'm making is this. Shaking it up, baby, does not shake up heaven, baby. What shakes up heaven is your love for God and your love and care for your neighbor. That shakes up heaven. Okay? Don't kid yourself. You like that, eh? You were shaking it up here. You're doing a really good job. I was was very impressed. Like I said, I would have shook it up too, except I would have fallen over. And then some, uh, some critic who's, a little bit uh, put off by my in your face preaching. Says, well, okay, Pastor Canon, that's great, but I haven't heard about Jesus lately. You've got to preach Jesus if you're going to really touch my heart. Oh, really? Well, that's interesting. What did Isaiah say about Jesus? Isaiah 42, 1 4. Here, Isaiah talks about Israel's coming Messiah, about Jesus. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. Jesus' mandate is not to have big evangelistic crusades. Jesus' mandate is not to get everybody saved. Jesus' mandate is to bring justice to the poor. You don't believe me? Well, just in case you don't believe me, Jesus preached in his hometown synagogue just as his ministry was beginning. And uh, the people didn't realize it, but he was about to really offend them. He sits before them, and that's what rabbis did in those days, by the way. They sat to to teach. They didn't stand to teach. And every... uh, Every synagogue service is all about reading the scripture. And it's interesting, it doesn't matter what synagogue you go to around the world, all the Jewish congregations are reading the same scripture. It's fascinating. And in the years that Kathy and I lived in Jerusalem, I went to a lot of synagogue services. I wasn't very good reading Hebrew, but the scripture was read. The preaching was, yeah, we can take it, we can leave it. And that's sort of the way it is in most churches. We can take it. We can leave it. Uh, when's he going to be finished? The scripture was, is the big deal in the synagogue. Okay. Jesus opens the scripture. The, actually, the, the, the scroll was handed to him. He didn't have a Bible like this. He had a scroll. The scroll was handed to him. And that very morning, they were reading this from Isaiah 61. the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus looks at his people, his mother, his brothers, a lot of his friends he'd grown up with are sitting there, and he says, this is me. Well, the next thing they wanted to do was throw him off a cliff. How dare you? How dare you take this messianic passage and say that it's you? This is Jesus. He doesn't say, the Lord has anointed me to have huge evangelistic crusades all across Africa. He's anointed me to be on television and to be a big celebrity, to write a lot of books and to impress people with my wealth. He has anointed me to wear white suits and white shoes with white teeth and looked like an angel more than a human being. He's anointed me to evangelize all of Nigeria and then try to influence all the rest of Africa with my doctrine out of Nigeria. I'm sorry I'm offending you, but I'm from Canada. What can I do? You know, I... I I, I can fly away and who cares. Right? He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. To give beauty for ashes. To release the prisoner. To bring justice. To bring justice to this earth. Justice. Justice. So, there's so many more scriptures I could give you, but I need to come back and do a a one-day seminar and bore you to tears. (laughs) What about Jesus and this bottom line of prophecy? There's, um, in Matthew 22, In Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 10, there is a record of an encounter Jesus had with a, I think he was a fairly young lawyer, a a young scribe, and uh, this young guy is very impressed with Jesus, and essentially he asks him, what's at the bottom line? I like the Mark 12 reference, but they're both, all three of them are good. Same story, but delivered in different ways. And by the way, don't ever expect Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to give the same account, the same timeline. No, don't, don't let that throw you at all. The gospel is not the product of a committee, where, where these four guys sit down, No, no, let's make sure we're saying the right thing, right timing, right. Blah, 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 blah. These guys are playing an instrument in God's orchestra. Each of them has their own instrument, each of them their own wind, each of them has their own sound. And sometimes there's, a, there's an unwarranted squeak or two, like there was with me in high school when I played a clarinet. What's at the bottom line? Jesus responds, Naichat. Ma Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Now, I am a Pentecostal, but that's not tongues. Relax. That's Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the bottom line confession of the Jewish faith. It is light to the Gentile world of idolatry. In a world surrounded by demons and gods of every description, this word from Israel was like a cutting knife. Hear, O Israel, hear all the nations of the world. There is one God. There is one God. Not two, not three, one God. This is light to the Gentiles. Okay? So... Jesus shows us how Jewish he is by saying that. By the way, I, I made this reference years ago to Jesus being Jewish, and there's a woman at the back who got really upset with me. Jesus wasn't Jewish! He was a Christian! <laughs> See, biblical ignorance knows no bounds. Jesus was Jewish. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. Here we go. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Righteousness, justice, right? But then, he helps us understand how you fulfill relationship with God, how you fulfill relationship with neighbor, and interestingly, how you fulfill relationship with yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's showing us how to love. To all of the teenagers out there, especially. You want to build your life well? Learn how to love God and love neighbor, and here's how you do it. This is is note-taking stuff. Jesus says the way you fulfill love, heart, soul, mind, the way you fulfill love for neighbor, the way you fulfill love for yourself is by engaging your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, the first word, heart, is a no-brainer. You know, our whole world is besotted with falling in love. You know, it's all about feelings, right? I, I always get a kick out of that term, falling in love. It's like you're walking along, you're not watching, you're going, you trip and you fall in a puddle. You know, bang, just fell in love. Ah, boy. Fell in love. But in our world, on social media, internet, TikTok, Twitter, you name it, it's all about feelings, right? Oh, he loves me. (laughs) I know he loves me. And this guy is a big phony. He's setting himself up as somebody he's not, and he's nothing but a liar. Right? You know, social media platforms are terrific platforms for the big lie. Now we're getting some response from the kids over here. Now I'm talking their language. I mean, you read all these stories, right, about all these broken-hearted girls, mainly these broken-hearted girls. They, they've been destroyed by a guy who told them he loved them on the Internet, and they follow him up, and all he is is a scam artist. He wants sex, and he wants money. Now, Jesus doesn't deny. Are you, are you with me here? Or, am I, am I a, bit, a bit strong medicine for you guys? You can chalk it up to me being white, okay? White guys are like this. Jesus doesn't deny the emotional component in love. It's important to feel. It's important to feel. Feel our love for God. That's a a big motivator, actually, in our praise and worship, is it not? We feel something for him. So... The first step in loving God, of course, is that emotive, that emotional component, with the heart. But then he adds to that, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, interestingly, in the Jewish context, soul and mind are pretty much equivalent. As a man thinketh in his heart, (laughs) who thinks in their heart? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, okay? And, and, and the lawyer actually will summarize uh, heart and soul by referring to it as understanding. It's exactly how the Jewish saw it. So, what, 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 what are we saying here? We're saying that heart and soul represent your intellect. You have your emotion, you have your intelligence. You love God with your intelligence. Paul said to young Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Do you hear me? Study, S-D-U-D-Y, to show yourself approved unto God. Not dance to show yourself approved unto God. Not praise to show yourself approved unto God. Not sing to show yourself approved unto God. Study. Rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that mean? It means taking your Bible and looking not just at a singular verse, but dividing your Bible, looking at context, context, context. What did Abraham say? What did Isaac say? What did Jacob say? What did Jesus say? You know, people do the Bible a great disservice. They think that if they read it at all, all they got to do is, you know, in a moment of piety, Open the Bible, close your eyes, and point the finger. And Judas went and hanged himself. Oh, that can't be it for me. Go and do thou likewise. I mean, really. Jesus says if you're going to love the Lord and your neighbor and yourself, you've got to have your brain in gear. Being a Christian, listen to me now, kids. Being a Christian does not mean kissing your brains goodbye. Study to show yourself. You know, there's a tremendous scripture in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. Reasonable? Reasonable, hello? Which is your intelligent worship, not ecstatic worship, not brain out of gear worship, brain in gear worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind! Hello! As a pastor, over the years, I've dealt with all kinds of people who are so spiritually malnourished, they look like they are refugees from a famine. Physically, they're not all skeletal, but spiritually, they're all skeleton. There's nothing to them. The slightest wind will blow them over. The slightest virus will destroy them spiritually. The slightest weird wind of doctrine will overwhelm them. They'll follow any false prophet who comes along. Why? Because they are malnourished. They have not fed their spirits on the word of God. So many times people have come to me with their issues... They want me to lay hands on them and perform radical surgery. And what, why, why? Study to show yourself approved unto God. Study, context, context, context. Engage your brain, for goodness sakes. Because if Christianity is just about how you feel, you are a superficial Christian you are a shallow Christian. Your root system is ready to be decayed. If it's all about heart, it is not sustainable. You've got to engage your brain. I'm doing okay. Another 15 minutes, you can relax. <laughs> heart, soul, mind. Emotion, Intelligence. And will. That's what strength is all about. Will. The strongest part of you is your willpower. You can be a little, you know, Joan of Arc or a short little Napoleon, and you can win the world. Not by the size of your muscles, but by the strength of your will. Mother Teresa in India was just a little gal. I don't think she weighed more than... uh, 80 pounds. She influenced the whole world, this little woman did, by the strength of her will. So when Jesus says you love God, you love neighbor, and you love yourself with your will, what is he telling us? He's saying you love God, you love neighbor, you love yourself with your listen to me, decisions. We are all the product of the decisions that we have made. You know that's true. So often we, you know, we want to blame others. Man, we are great blame shifters. Right? It was my upbringing. It was my, my father. It was, it was my name. Okay, 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 okay. Life happens. But ultimately, friends, you are the product of the decisions that you have made, not the decisions someone else has made. Don't claim victim status even though you may have been victimized. Get over it. What's the expression? Build a bridge and get over it. I mean, really. Are you going to spend the rest of your life marinating in the victimization of your past? Are you not going to live today and celebrate the sunshine and the toxic cancer? Or are you just going to live superating, infected by this toxic cancer of memory? I know life is tough. I can tell you about some of my memories, which I won't, but get beyond your memories. Hello? Get beyond them. Start making good decisions. Good decisions for God, good decisions for neighbor, good decisions for self. When I researched years ago, I came across a story of uh, back in the 1500s of a newly married young man who was brought to the the, the parson, the preacher in town. In those days, the preacher was the parson, P-A-R-S-O-N, which is Old English for the person. He would be the only one in the village who was literate. He's the only one who could read and write. So he was a notary for all the legal agreements. He acted as a lawyer sometimes as a judge because he was the parson, the person. Okay? This guy's been married a few months. His neighbors are aware of the fact that he's carrying on an adulterous relationship with his neighbor's wife. And so they bring him to the parson for discipline. He tries to explain himself to the parson. Yes, yes, the parson, I did, I did it. But you, you don't understand the outside pressures. Outside pressures. Yeah, outside pressure. Outside pressures, boy. Outside pressures. Where were your inside braces? Did you hear that? Do you know what a brace is? Where was that inside you that kept the outside pressures at bay? To deal with uh, people who are promiscuous or adulterous. And they always have this story to tell me. I'm not very patient with these stories. Excuse me, excuse me, sir, excuse me. Don't give me this sad story. This began a year and a half ago when you looked at her across the room and your eyes met and you looked at her in a beguiling way. It started there. It started when you kind of sidled up to her, and your your shoulders accidentally touched. Or you handed her a cup of coffee, and you stroked her hand. This started when you were lying in your bed at night, and instead of making love to your wife, you had sexual fantasies about your neighbor's wife. Long before you had sex with her, You were lusting after her. And that's what Jesus means when he says lusting after is not a good thing. Because it's not a case of just feeling desire. It's a case of pursuing desire. I will get her to bed sooner or later. That's lusting after. Well, here's the point. Fella, your decision a year and a half ago to hold her gaze was the beginning of that adulterous relationship. It was a decision you made. It was a decision you made to sidle up behi- beside her and casually brush her shoulder. It was a decision you made to caress her hand as you handed her that cup of coffee. It was a decision you made to accidentally show up at her place of work one day for some reason and to carry on a, a beguiling conversation decisions. We are all monuments to the decisions we've made. Don't kid yourself. Don't blame someone else. You know, the problem John says in one of his epistles is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Sex, materialism, and power. That's a a whole different sermon, right? Sex, materialism, and power. I mean, why, why, why is there all that corruption out there in the government? Here, South Africa, Malawi, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, USA, Canada, France, UK. Sex, materialism, and power. We make decisions. I was speaking to uh, two grade 10 high school classes last week in uh, Johannesburg. These were kids from a very poor area where I'm sure every girl in the room has been sexually abused several times. And these guys just think these girls are fair game. And so I went at them hard. You should have seen the faces on these guys. It was like I was hitting them in the face. You know, and a prophetic word is like a a fist to the jaw. So you're going to have your 30 seconds of pleasure, and she's going to carry the memory for the rest of her life. There's going to be a baby, and that baby will never know you as a father. That baby will be an orphan. Just because you want to take her for thirty seconds or a minute. I mean, really. Are you not thinking, fella? Think. And then decide. If you think before you decide, you will decide rightly. Because you have innately the image of God, even though you may not be a follower of Jesus. And you know what is right and what is wrong. You know what is right and what is wrong. You know it. Final comments. You love the Lord, your God, with your feelings. You love the Lord, your God, with your intelligence. You love the Lord, your God, with your decisions. You love your neighbor with your heart. You love your neighbor with your soul and mind. You love your neighbor with your strength. You also love yourself this way. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. There are hundreds of millions of people out there, billions of people out there on social networks, whose primary characteristic is insecurity. They are so insecure. This is why those who are influencing them on social media are called influencers. An influencer cannot influence a secure person. But an influencer can very much influence an insecure person, right? In the dark web, I've never been there, but I've read about it. There are hundreds of millions of insecure men preying on child pornography and being scammed by cartels who present attractive women on the screen for them, who enter into intimate conversation, and eventually name-to-name conversation. And eventually, you know, I'm about to uh, uh, pay some insurance on my car, and I'm a little short on money. Can you send me some money? You you know these stories. You want to be secure? Here's how to be secure. Love yourself with your heart. Love yourself with your mind. Love yourself with your decisions. I can take you into bookstores in North America that have whole sections of hundreds of books on self Pastor Reuter has made it very clear to you in his preaching, and I, I've read a couple books of his sermons over the last few days. You've got a good preacher in this pulpit here. You're blessed. You're really blessed. This, this, uh, this man does his work. I know this as a preacher because I see all of his scripture references, and I see the way he's analyzed them. I see the way he's presenting them to you. And he says to you again and again and again over the years, you are a child of God. You are a son of the Most High. You are a daughter of the Holy One of Israel. And if you are the child of God, then what's up with you with your low self-esteem? Really. Life is much more than this little short time we have on earth. Life is about what is to come when we enter into the presence of the Lord, where we become the planting of the Lord. And I, I hear you when you say, "Well, I'm just little. Nobody knows me. I, I, you know, I'm not even very well educated. I, you know, I've got a grunt job." I'm. One day at the temple, the people were giving their offerings, and outside the temple was this big. Love making a lot of noise for their offerings, where people could throw in money, and it was made out of metal, so it made a lot of noise. People love making a lot of noise for their offerings. Look how much I'm giving. There's this one little widow who kind of humbly sneaks up, silently drops in two mites, which essentially is about a quarter of a penny. Jesus says, see that woman? She's given more Than all the rest of them put together. They've given out of their abundance. She's given all she has. That's how the Lord values us, friends. It's not our economic wealth, it's not our charismatic personality, it's not our job, whatever it is that we're doing. He values us because He knows our name, He's made us in His image. And he has a home prepared for you, for you, with your name on it. I don't know if you've been seeing any of the documentaries lately on television or the internet coming out of the new telescope, the James Webb Telescope. Uh, astonishing. This universe of ours, astonishing. Our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is a minor player. In a universe, that has trillions of galaxies. Our galaxy is like a little bit of sand compared to some of the other galaxies. And in our galaxy, we have a 100 billion stars. In our little galaxy. And the earth is just a bit of dust. Surely, the Lord has a plan for the universe. It's exciting to think about it. Don't think for a minute that heaven is going to be some kind of retirement home for spiritual people. The Bible says we're going to rule and reign with him. Rule and reign with him. Man, what does that mean? All I know is that there's a lot more planets and stars and galaxies out there than there are people who've ever lived. I got a feeling that one day I'm going to be visiting Pastor Reuter's galaxy. I know I'm being light when I say it. But the point is this: it boggles the mind to think about what awaits those who love him. How? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor, the orphan, the widow, the poor, with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love yourself with all your heart, soul mind and strength, and build your life on righteousness justice. Amen.